John 2, chapter 2, this is the ESV version, which is a very good translation. The wedding at Cana. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, There's no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what has that got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servant, Do whatever he tells you. Now there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves a good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is just one of the peculiar things in the Bible, isn't it? Why on earth did Jesus turn water into wine? What's the point of it? Um, especially as he said to his mother, my time not ready, you know, he goes ahead and does it anyway. And it, it doesn't make sense to think, well, there's all this stuff that's going on. There's all these people who are ill, there's people who, can't, who are just away from God. There's all sorts of stuff going on. And what did Jesus do? He turned water into wine. At a wedding feast, you think, well, that's the last thing they need. They've run out of wine. They've obviously been drinking plenty already. Gives them even more. Well, let's just think about this. Wedding feasts at that time took about seven days. So you have family and friends coming along. It was a big occasion. So you have the effect of the marriage. You have the husband and wife together. And then once they've been together, then you have the, the big feast afterwards. So it's a big celebration that, that things are happening. And of course, there's lots of people, seven days, you know, things can get emptied out. But I think the real purpose of this, this actual miracle only makes sense if you look at the earlier parts of John, the first chapter of John. And the first chapter of John starts off with this incredible poetic statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, and all that all might believe through him. He was not the light, who came to give bear witness about the light. So we have John the Baptist arrived on the scene. That's who the John is talking about there, John the Baptist, not the John who wrote the Gospel. And he comes and he says, I'm here to actually show people the way to God. God sent him because I want to get people's hearts right. There's something going to be happening. I want to get people's hearts right. And John, as you know, goes around baptizing people, saying, repent and be baptized. Get your hearts right. Get yourself straightened out. Start looking at God properly again. Start getting yourself into the right place. And John had disciples. 
people followed him because they wanted something. They recognised something in John. They thought, there's something this man has we want. There's something we want. And the emphasis of John's Gospel is very much Jesus being God. It's different from the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, which are all based roughly around and we understand what Peter's life story was. This one is also an eyewitness testimony. It's believed to be by the Apostle John. There's some debate over it, but the general thing is whether he wrote it or dictated it or whatever. There's, there's a general sense that he was extremely influential in what was said in this gospel. So we have a different eyewitness account of things happening. It was written later in the other gospels, and the sense being, God, if John, or the writer, John, wanted to get across the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. He's not this strange thing that's just a human person who did good things. He is the living embodiment of God. And that's the basis that, that John sets up his story. And that's the basis of why he wrote, why he puts things as they are in, in the gospel. And that's why this particular miracle is there. Because when John came, there hadn't been a prophet in Israel for about 450 years. Israel had had a fairly checkered history from when the Second Temple was built around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. That was finished around about 300 years beforehand. They had been ruled by Egypt for a time, it had been ruled by the Greeks for a time, and then one of the Greek rulers was so fed up with the way the Jews were persisting in keeping to a monotheistic religion, serving one god, as opposed to the polytheistic religion, many gods of Greek, that he went and sacrificed a sow, a female pig, in the temple. And this so outraged some of the, um, the Jews that a chap called Judas of Maccabees rose up uh, and the Jews revolted and they basically threw out the uh, ruling Greek parties and they established a Jewish kingdom for a short time, about 70 years, uh, and they brought back, they rededicated the temple, sacrificed everything else. That's what goes on. Then you have, they, then the end of that sort of kingdom fell out with acrimony, and the two parties, and one party said to, to Pompey, the actual Roman uh, general, can you come and arbitrate? And he said, yeah, sure, fine, and ended up annexing Judah as part of the Roman Empire. And that's why we are, at the time of this gospel starting, the Romans had been in <coughs> occupation, effectively, of Judah for you know, several decades. And I'm running it. The guy who was actually appointed by the Romans to run this place was Herod the Great, as he's now known. Now known. It's not always called at the time, but he was like the first big Herod king. With Jewish ancestry. But there we go. And he was a strange guy, did lots of horrible things, killing lots of people. But one of the things he did do, and apparently to try and make atonement for the fact he killed so many people, thinking so a lot of the priests he killed, was to transform the temple. So he transformed the temple. What he did, the second temple had been built by, I'm sorry about all this, but it gives you an idea where we're coming from. So the temple rebuilt by Ezra and Nehemiah was there, called the second temple, as opposed to the first temple was built by Solomon and got destroyed. Second temple's there, needs a bit of work on it, needs extending, Herod comes along and spends, I don't know, billions on it. He, he increases the actual scope of the area, he builds up the actual hill, builds it out with incredible building, feet of building, 
fills it in to extend the actual area and then builds a new temple on top. Faces a temple with white marble and then gold finishing. They said it was so bright you couldn't look at it. See when the sun shone on it. So you have this incredible sensation. You have the priests doing their stuff. You have the temple looking fantastic. And John comes along and says, repent. I mean, what do they need to repent for? They've got everything going for them. But it's not real. They've got all the stuff, all the show. But it's not real. And John comes along and says, there's something rotten in the state of Israel. Get yourself sorted out. And people are hungry for God. There's a formality of religion, but what, where's the reality? Where's the reality of God? And if you look at what Jesus said about some of the things that are going on, we talk about the Pharisees. You have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I was looking into this a bit. and The Pharisees were like, they were the priests in the temple, and they were the political guys, and they were the ones who effectively worked with the Romans. And then you have the Pharisees, who are much more, the, the, sorry, the, the Sadducees were very more the elite, the, the wealthy ruling classes. Then the Pharisees, who were responsible for like the day-to-day -day work in the synagogues, there was like the, the one definition of Pharisee apparently set apart. So you could say they're a bit like the holy ones, the ones who are trying to keep God alive. And they have slightly different things they believe. But there you go. Anyway, so Jesus comes along. Jerusalem's doing its own thing. The priests in Jerusalem are doing their own thing there, doing all the sacrifices. The Pharisees spread out across the country in little synagogues, basically having direct influence on the lives of people. And then Jesus comes along, and Matthew 23 he says this about them. The teacher of the law of the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful of everything they tell you. We do not do what they do, but they don't practice what they preach. So this right at the beginning says, yeah, what they're talking about is great, but the way they live is not good. This is what they do. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. And they're not willing, but they themselves are not willing to to figure to move them. Then again, everything they do is for people to see. They love the place of honour at banquets and most important seats in synagogues. They love to greet you with respect in the marketplace and called rabbi by others. Then he says to them directly, you tithe your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. I mean, cumin, tiny. But you neglect the more important matter of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You blind guide, you strain out a nut, but swallow a camel. I mean, if you imagine it, it's so picky, but they've lost the, big, the bigger picture. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. So that's what, that's what it's like. Jesus comes along later on and says to the Pharisees, this is what your lives are like. John the Baptist is here before this happened and said, get yourself sorted out before God. Repent and be baptized because you're not right. And people are hungry. And I think John's disciples are people saying, we're hungry for reality. We're hungry for God again. Is God the God who showed himself to Moses and Abraham. Is he still alive? Is he still the same God? Is he still interested? Is he still here with us? We're doing all this stuff, but is it really worth doing? Is God really here? And John the Baptist comes along 
And he sees Jesus. He, he identifies Jesus as being the one who's to follow. The one he said is going to follow. And he says that again. He said to his disciples, he's the one. He's the Lamb of God. He said specifically twice, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then he said again, the Lamb of God. Which is a direct reference to the sacrifice, the atonement sacrifice, the Lamb being each year being used to, to take away the sins of the people. And he identified Jesus being this lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And two of John's disciples, there may be more, but certainly two of them we know of, go off and follow Jesus. One of them was Andrew, who is Simon Peter's brother. The other one isn't named, but the general tradition is that was John who wrote the gospel. So these guys go off and they meet Jesus, they spend time with Jesus. And they obviously like some what they see, and they stay with him. And they go to this, there's one or two other people join in with Jesus. And they obviously think, this guy's good. But at the back of their mind, I think, they must have been thinking, okay, he's great. John the Baptist rates him. We like John. We hear from God. He rates this man. But is it all talk? Is it going to be just like all the others? Is it going to be God? Or is it going to be just the same talk, 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 and then, you know, ending nothing. But they stick with him. They said, let's see what he can do. Let's see. And they go to a wedding. And they go to this wedding. And Jesus turns the water into wine. And it says they believed. Do you think, why did that event cause them to believe? Interesting, isn't it? They believed. It just didn't say everyone believed. It said the disciples believed. These guys who've been seeking after God, believed. The interesting thing, in Samuel, 2 Samuel, chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, you have David on the run from his son Absalom. Uh, complicated story, but that's what's happening. And um, going away, and then he's met by a servant of the Shibbethet. Something like that. Um, <laughs> who was one of who was Jonathan's son. And uh, it says here, when David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 kegs of raisins, 100 kegs of figs, and a skin of wine. The king asked Ziba, why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and fruit are the men to eat, and the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the wilderness. The wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the wilderness. These people are in the wilderness. They've got all the trappings. You've got the priesthood, you've got really slick, it's all working. You've got this fantastic temple you can go and look at, which is just must have been absolutely stunning. In fact, what's left of the temple in Jerusalem? isn't part of the temple, it's part of the foundations that Herod built to actually build up the foundation of the temple. And they say the blocks are so big and so well carved, they can't work out how they did it with the primitive technology available at the time. They don't reckon they could do it now. But that's what's there, that's the waiting morning, it's the foundations of Herod's temple. So this thing was incredible. But it's in the wilderness. It's as if they got nothing. And so we get the miracle, the wedding feast. I say, you've got all these people drinking, drink, 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 dancing, singing, having a fantastic time, just having a, a major party. They're so excited that these people got married. They're just delighted for them. 
and they run out of wine. And Jesus says to the servants, fill those, uh, fill those stone pots over there. Knowing that they are purification pots. Knowing that they're the pots that are used for water. They're the pots that are used for water, for cleaning people. Because the Jews are very religious. And they'd clean themselves to make sure that they were right. Because they wouldn't be unclean when they ate food and everything else. To make sure they were clean, properly clean. And they wouldn't dishonor God. But it's all for show. It was all superficial. It wasn't getting to the root of the matter. They represent the, the like the formal religion. These deep jars. They're sort of big edifices there. Several jars, 20, 30 gallons each. So they're pretty big jars. 30 gallons is 183 bottles of wine, or 100, or so 1,091 glasses of wine using the measure of 1. 125 ml per glass. Taking one bottle of wine in six glasses, <laughs> from experience, I'm sorry. <laughs> but 1,090 glasses of wine in a 30 gallon thing. Now these are 20 or 30 gallons, so it's a bit less, it's about 890 glasses of wine in a 20 gallon thing. It's plenty, plenty. More than I normally need. <laughs> <laughs> and it refreshes. People are lost in the wilderness. It refreshes people in the wilderness. The wine is there to refresh. Yes, there's stuff in the Bible. The Bible is very clear that wine must not be misused. That drunkenness is completely wrong. But at the same time, you've got this thing where wine is also used as being an analogy of good stuff, of good things, of life, of joy, of refreshing. And so... Jesus turns this water into wine. He, he uses the very things which are the symbol of the, the religiosity into something different. Rather than just water coming out and going externally, it's something that goes inside you. It's something that changes you inside. It's something that is good for you inside. It's an internal thing. And it's a picture of what Jesus is coming to do. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's this whole new life that's going to come. And the disciples start picking up on this. They're not stupid. They've been with John the Baptist. They know the scriptures. They've been seeking God. They've been in the wilderness. They're saying, God, are you still there? Are you still the God of our ancestors? Are you going to move and we're going to see reality? Instead of these men who are just parading their religiosity and making life hard for everybody. God, do you hear our cry? And Jesus comes and turns water into wine. They say, yes. I've come to refresh you. I've heard your cry. God's heard the cry of the Israelites. It said, um, forgive me, I forgot the verse, but uh, if my people who call me my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then will I hear them of heaven and turn and heal their land. Deuteronomy. It's, a, it's an old promise where God said, I know you're going to turn away from me as you I've said all this stuff before, but I know you're going to turn away from it. But if you get yourself right, I'll come and hear you, and I'll heal you, and forgive you. And this is the embodiment of that. Jesus is saying, right at the beginning, I'm here. Yes, God has heard. I've come to refresh you. I've come to give you real life. Real life from God. Not this religiosity anymore. And look at it, the abundance of it. It's not just the measly, well, I'll give you a little bit. You have little, little, little teaspoonful of wine. You can have a little bit of me. So God doesn't come along and say, oh, I'll just give you a little bit. 
That's all you need. Because you're not you're bit, you're not, you're not very nice people. I give you a little bit, but I keep you happy. He says, I'll give you an abundance. You know, 30, 20 gallons of, of wine. I'm going to give it to you in abundance. I mean, I don't know whether they changed all of it to wine or just that they drew it out what they needed it to turn to wine. And people have argued about this. It doesn't really matter. The point is, whatever they needed, there was enough there. Whatever we need, there's enough there to fill us. There's enough of God to fill every thirsty person here and the whole world. There's no limit to God's abundance. And the quality, the best wine. It wasn't like this cheap wine you get from Lidl. It's the best wine. <laughs> Sorry, Lidl do very good wine. <laughs> they do. They do some rubbish wine. They do some good wine. Anyway. I love they do rubbish wine as well, but that's a different story. But it's quality. The quality's there. This is the real deal. This is the real stuff. My brother-in-law is really into wine. Really, really into wine. There's lots of course on it. And I went to my mother, went to my mum's recently, and they lived nearby. So we had a meal at my brother and sister's house. And we had champagne before the meal. I was driving, so I could only have a little taste of it. But it was champagne before the meal, which is very nice. Select, select champagne, and it's very select. I'm not going to be a box family one. Then we had a white wine with the actual starter, which is very nice, very sharp and crisp. Then we had a red wine with a main meal, which is a proper wine, because the wine is a meal as well. Then we had a dessert wine with a dessert, which is a lovely, I think it's a toque or something, but it's a, no, it's a nice wine, a Canadian ice wine. And then we had uh, a further red wine <coughs> with the cheese, cheese. I had tiny sips, just to make sure I could taste each of these different wines. And they were all gorgeous. And I went to went a few years ago, I went there, and we had this fantastic white wine from a, a vineyard in, in, in Kent, because I live near Kent, live in Kent. And it's fantastic. And he loves his wine. It was good quality wine. And now and again, I, I like to have a nice bottle of wine, because I think, not myself, obviously, um, <laughs> just to see what it's like. Because I drink, you, you drink sort of plonk, together, and occasionally you think, what am I missing out on? And occasionally, you just think, that's what wine's meant to be like. And this is the real deal. This guy, the, the, he's like the bride, the um, best man, the leader of the feet. The feet. He, he, stuff, he thinks this is good quality stuff. This is good quality stuff. And it, Jesus didn't do anything, any magic tricks. He wasn't actually touching anything. It happened. He tells you what to do. They do it. They take it. And it happens. And it's in abundance. And it's quality. And it's a blessing. Every time Jesus gets involved, things get better. It's better. The wedding was better because Jesus got involved. The wedding was better. Whatever they planned, all the things they'd done, all the planning and preparation and everything else, it was better after Jesus had got involved. And that's what God's saying to us. There's the abundance and it's quality and it's better than anything else you've ever tasted. Anything. Your life is better. That's what he's coming to give them. And the disciples saw God at work and they believed in Jesus. They thought, I want this. I want this. I'm fed up with what I've seen. I want this. Jesus, if you can give this to me, I'm following you the rest of my life. I'm not going to give up. I'm after you, Jesus. I'm going to stay with you. I believe in you because I believe you're the one who's going to give me what I need. You're going to fill the dryness, the emptiness, and waste that with beauty. The waste of my life can become beautiful. It can flower like these 
we see it on television where you have this desert and occasionally get the rain and it comes and it just blossoms, just fantastic blossom everywhere. And Jesus is saying, I want to come and give you life in the in the areas which are dead and broken and lifeless and arid and horrible. I want to bring life into those areas and let pools flow out, pools of blessing flow out from you into your life and into the lives of others. So where do we go with this? First of all, I think we've got to respond to this. And it's been a challenge to me, it's been a real challenge, it's, it's, it's thinking, well, am I prepared to? And I'm thinking, am I prepared to die for this stuff? I thought, yeah, I am. Am I prepared to fight for it? I don't know, some days. Some days. Oh. If someone came in now and said, are you Christians, you're going to, you know, be a Christian, go against the wall, I'm going to shoot you, we probably all would do it. But the devil isn't that. He's more subtle than that. He says, well, what about this? He says, mm, that's not too bad. You can get away with that. That's not too bad. You can get away with that. It's a better fight for it. I'm a better fight every day, every part of me, every issue that I face. I'm a better fight and see God's will in, in, in the thing. I'm a prepared to see God's blessing in these areas in my life. And that's been a challenge to me. So I think the first thing is we face up the dryness in us, or the, or the, you may not be, if you're not great. I mean, there's times when I'm flowing with God, there's times when I'm completely wrecked. And I think, God, what's this? It's just you know, the days I'm completely dry. There's some days, every time I read the Bible, I'm just thinking, God, you're there. My father's speaking to me. And there's this sense of everything you read. Another day, it just dust. So face up the dryness in us. Cry out to God. Have that thirst for God. Accept the fact that we might be weary of what's going on. We don't have to stay where we are. I've got weariness, the status quo, and that's not the rock for you. Weariness of being the same day after day after day after day. Weariness with just religion, religion's sake. Jesus said in Isaiah 55, 1, for the following words, which Jesus echoed in John 7:37. So Isaiah 55, 1. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. See, we've got a God who's willing and able to meet us and fill us, to give us what we need, to satisfy us right deep down in those deep areas. Everything. There's nothing he can't sort out. Nothing You've done wrong, nothing other people have done to you, no excuses, nothing that Jesus can't deal with. He's big enough, he's got abundance, it's quality, it's blessing. Whatever there is, he can deal with it. There's nothing can stop us drinking from him. And no one's going to be good enough, you're never good enough. And look and think, God, I'm not good enough for all the good things you've done for me. And look and think, God, why? He You've done so many good things in my life. What have I done to deserve it? And there's nothing I've done to deserve it. But he's been good to me. He's been good to me all my life. There's a Graham Kendrick song I played this morning. Lord, you've been good to me all my life. Simple song, but it's just moving me every time I hear it. For each one of us, God wants to meet with you where you are, whatever it is, and say, I'm here, fill you. I've got the wine. 
in abundance to fill you, to give you life anew, afresh. There's nothing that you need to do except come thirsty and ask me to fill you. To fill you. And that's for everybody, whether you know God or not. If you don't know Jesus, if you really, I don't think everyone does know Jesus yet, but if you don't know Jesus, then get hold of him. Get hold of him. Find out, stop praying, stop crying out, even in ignorance. Cry out and say, God, I want to know you. So I just say, come drink the wine of salvation. Come and be completely satisfied.